please take your Bibles and let us turn together to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. And we will read together in this chapter, uh, the verse 1, just the first part of the chapter, the, the um, little parable that lies here in this opening part of this chapter. I also welcome you. Trust the Lord will meet with us tonight and bless us. Bless those who join with us online also and touch our hearts as we meet around His Word. So Luke 18, verse number 1, And He spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. And the Lord will bless reading of these verses to us. Again, let's just have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we bow before thee, and we do not lift up our hearts to thee in some mundane fashion, just out of mere duty. Lord, we do so because we feel our great need of help. We have read here about prayer and of our own need not to faint but to keep on praying. And we ask thee, Lord, that thou wilt use thy word tonight to stir our souls, to cause our hearts to be lifted up toward heaven, to go out after thee, even in this time that will be spent in prayer. And so, Lord, be with us now, we pray, and grant us your presence and your help. We ask this in Jesus' name and for His glory and His eternal praise. Amen and amen. Now, this parable is specially focused on the difficult times for Christ's church that will precede the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is indicated by the reference in the, in fact, the main focus in this parable on a widow who is suffering adversity and who seeks uh, for the avenging of her adversary. As the Lord applies what the parable teaches, as He points to His own church, He speaks of God avenging the enemies of His people at the time of the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is seen in the last couple of verses especially. And the point is very obvious. It is only when the Lord comes that the uh, avenging of the enemies, of the adversaries, of the Lord's truth and His people, His cause in this earth will fully take place. It is then that there will be the crushing and the avenging of the powers of darkness and anti-Christianity that will take place then in that final sense. And that is borne out, of course, not only here, but it's borne out in much Scripture. 
So this parable has a thrust in that it instructs the Lord's people to pray persistently in the face of difficulties that precede the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that we often talk about the last days, and rightly so, because the Bible speaks of them, and we understand what the Bible means by that phrase, the last days, and it does actually refer to the whole New Testament period, speaking correctly. But in our general way of using the term, we think of the, well, might say the last of the last days, and many would feel that we have moved into those days. Now, nobody can be sure, of course. We have to be very careful with all of our thoughts about that. But there are many, many signs now about adversity, in relation to adversity, uh, the opposition of hell to the gospel, to Christ, to the Bible, to holy things, to the work of God uh, as a whole, uh, much more so than ever before, or so it seems. And as far as the breakout of sin is concerned, it is much more uh, prolific than perhaps, certainly in our lifetime, any of us here tonight, and maybe uh, without parallel ever before in the history of this world. As we think about that matter, sin has always been around. Sin has always been in the human heart. Sin has always been practiced. Every sin of every kind but now it is open, it is blatant, as it was never seen before, or so we would be aware. And therefore, we have these feelings in our hearts that we have moved into the very end times, as we call them, into those days that, well, whatever length they may be, that will lead us to the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. But here's a power that tells us that in such times we are to pray persistently, in the face of the difficulties that will arise and that will encompass God's people and all of His work. Notice verse 1, and observe that the Lord had in mind the objective of enabling His people and encouraging His people to pray without fainting. It says there, He spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And you may know the famous words of Matthew Henry when he wrote his commentary about this parable, and he said in his own quaint way that this parable has the key hanging at the door. That's a very good way of putting it, because right in the first verse, here's the reason why this parable was given. It was that men ought always to pray and not to faint. The word faint there means to lose heart, or it could also be read to become weary. And whether it's the time immediately before the Lord comes that we think about, or any other time, there is always need for the Lord's people not to become faint or weary, but to continue in prayer and pursue prayer, persevere in prayer, as the Lord gives us help to do so. However, not only does the Lord emphasize that need, that urgency, and that matter of not fainting in prayer, but He sets before us in this parable certain truths that are designed to encourage us to keep on praying and to keep us from fainting in prayer so that we will persist and we will cry to the Lord in that fashion that is described under the analogy of this widow woman and all that she went through as she went, as the parable shows, to gain relief in her situation. 
So there are three very simple thoughts I want to leave with you from this parable before we go to prayer tonight. First of all, there is the argument. And the argument is that when the believer knows that the cause over which he prays is a just cause and a righteous cause, then he has, she has, whoever may be, man or woman, child of God, then he or she has an irresistible plea or argument to present at the throne of grace. That is the line of thought that stands immediately and prominently in this parable with regard to the plea that the widow actually made. She came to the judge, as it says there in verse number 3, and her plea was, avenge me of mine adversary. Now, the word avenge is used four times in this parable, twice concerning the widow and twice in the Lord's application of what he's teaching here, uh, his application to his own church. Now, just think about that word avenge for a moment or two. Literally, it means out of justice, that which proceeds from justice and is a matter of justice. And so the word speaks, therefore, of the vindication of a person's rights. The widow went to the judge over some matter or other. We're not told what it was. I believe this is all based on a true story, as many of the parables, uh, of course, actually are. And so she went to the judge over a matter of pure justice, and she pled with him to vindicate her because her rights had been violated in some fashion or other. And on that basis, we are to understand what the Lord then says in verse number 7, shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them. And so there's the same word in verse 7, and it's the word avenge. It signifies, as I've said, vindicating someone's rights. In verse 7 as well, you have the word cry. And that word really signifies powerfully a cry for help when a person's rights have been violated and an injustice has been done. That's the sense of the word cry. If you'll turn quickly to James 5 and verse number 4, you will see how the word is used there, and it brings out something of the, the sense of the, of the word cry, this particular word for cry. James 5 verse 4, it says, Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which as of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. And so the, the context here is of the injustice that was being done to the reapers, and they weren't paid, they weren't given their due reward for their labor. And they were crying about this. They were raising up their voices in protest, you might say, at what had happened to them. And it tells us here, the Lord tells us here through James, that their cries, that is when injustice is done, when a person's rights have been violated, it actually rises up to heaven, that cry, enters into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. And so there's how the word cry is also used, and we see the sense of it. And so going back to Luke 18, we've looked at the word avenge, what it means, and that means that the parable underlines the matter of God's people. 
being dealt with unjustly. That's the sense of the parable. That's what happened to this widow. That's why she went to the judge. She'd been dealt with unjustly. She's going there to plead for her own rights to be recognized and for the avenging of her that justice would be done. And so the parable underlines, as I say, the matter of the people of God, people like ourselves meeting here tonight, being dealt with unjustly. The word avenge, as I've just shown you, is a word that signifies this. And therefore, we can see from this parable that the Lord is actually teaching that throughout time, throughout history, His church is dealt with unjustly, treated wrongfully, violated by persecuting foes. And that is because of the church's adherence to Christ and all that Christ is as a person and all the work that Christ has done uh, to save His people from their sins because of their adherence to Christ and the truths that surround Him. The church is hated. The church is despised by the world or the ungodly as we find in many, many verses. This happened, of course, in Old Testament days. You read, if you look quickly at Hebrews 11, you will read there in that chapter, uh, verse 35, uh, on through the following verses. Hebrews 11, verse 35, it says, Others were tortured, just moving into the midst of that verse, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. And as I said before in preaching through Hebrews, the word tortured actually refers to been placed on the rack, the original Greek word. If you know what the rack was, it was you were placed on the rack and you were tied hand and feet at either end, then a handle was turned and you were, you were tortured in that way. And of course, that was one of the popular forms of torture used by the Church of Rome at the time of the Inquisition. And so that's what that word actually means. And so it says, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. In other words, deliverance was offered to them. If you recant, if you repudiate Christ, if you turn from the gospel, well, then we'll let you go. But it says he would not accept that, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. That little clause means that the world did not deserve to have those Christians in it. These people who were godly and holy, who only loved the Lord, that was their crime, who lived for the Lord. The world didn't deserve to have such people in it, as it still doesn't deserve to have God's people. It goes on to say they wandered in deserts, in mountains, and dens, and caves of the earth, and on and on it goes. These are people in Old Testament days, and they were hated, and they were despised by the world of the ungodly. You find in Luke 11, the Lord referring to those right down from Abel himself through the Old Testament ages. Luke 11, verse 50, he speaks there of the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. The Lord Jesus Christ 
will make in possession someday with regard to the blood of the martyrs, the blood of the saints, and it, and it will be brought to light. What happened? How they were treated? How they were despicably treated by the religion of their day, the ungodly and the Christ-hating religion of their day. And so we find this, that they were hated as they hated the Lord. And indeed, they were hated without a cause. That's what's said of Christ himself in John 15, 25. They hated me without a cause. And other verses make this clear. And so the Lord's people are hated for the sake of Jesus Christ. The reason why God's people are hated, why they're treated despicably, why the church is persecuted, why it is ridiculed, why men pass evil laws to try to undermine the Bible, undermine God's uh, standards and so on, is because the gospel is offensive to them. Paul speaks of the offense of the gospel in the Galatians, the book of Galatians. And the gospel's offensive because the gospel is exclusive. In other words, the gospel doesn't tolerate any other idea of being saved except through Jesus Christ. That's what's meant by the offense of the gospel. It's exclusive proclamation that, as the Lord said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And therefore, the gospel is offensive and hated because it's exclusive. It is offensive and hated because it reveals divine wrath on sin. You think of Romans 1, 16 to 18, where you have Paul say, first of all, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, whether Jew or Greek. He goes on to say in verse 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. And then in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That means revealed through the gospel. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That's man's nature, his ungodly nature, and unrighteousness, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. And so the gospel, when it's properly preached, when it's truly preached, yes, it does call men to come to Christ. It promises a perfect righteousness to those who believe, but it also proclaims that for unbelief and Christ's rejection and for persisting in sin, and the outworking of the ungodly heart of man thereby, there is the wrath of God. And that brings the hatred of an ungodly world. And when it calls on men to repent, they don't want that either. To be told you must turn from your sin and forsake your sin, abandon it, and come before God humbly, uh, humbling oneself before a holy God. Don't want to hear that either. And the Lord said in his day to such people, except ye repent, ye shall likewise perish like others who had perished. And so adherence to the gospel undoubtedly brings opposition. It undoubtedly brings unjust treatment and persecution. And God's people, we should not be surprised at that. The unjust treatment has many forms. But they're all designed to resist and silence the voice of the gospel and all that the gospel proclaims. 
And it will happen more and more. It will increase toward the end of time. I was just thinking about Daniel 7, 24 and 25. And look with me at those verses, please. Daniel 7, 24. It says, And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. You'll read of those same ten kings in Revelation 17. But here's Daniel 7, 24. He talks or writes here about those ten kings uh, that shall arise. Another shall arise after them. And this, of course, is Antichrist himself. And he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings, and he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. Now, there's a lot of detail there that we just leave alone because uh, that detail, some of it's quite mysterious. But there's one thing there that we should note about the Antichrist, about the whole system of anti-Christianity. He shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. And there you have the agenda of Antichrist. There you have the policy of the man of sin, there you have what he will do. And of course, uh, that has happened long before our day and, and, and has happened prior to the days when this man of sin will appear. But notice that his agenda is to change times and laws. Whose are they? God's times and God's laws. What God has decreed, what God has laid down. This will come to a peak in those days when the man of sin will appear before the coming of the Lord and will be destroyed by the coming of the Lord. As 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us very, very clearly, and I've preached through that epistle not that long ago, and we saw that clearly from that second chapter, that the man of sin will be destroyed at the appearing and by the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there will be an increased um, opposition to the gospel uh, toward the end of time, prior to the coming of the Lord. And that is the one thing that we are seeing very, very clearly. And we are aware of what is going on in our own nation, across the nations of the earth in general, but certainly in our own nation, and here in our own little province. You know, the, the law of God protects people. That's what it's designed to do in terms of the implementation of the Ten Commandments. If men would follow the Ten Commandments, they would find protection from so many detrimental uh, things in this life. And certainly, is the, the Ten Commandments, if you take the Sixth Commandment, Thou shalt do no murder, is designed to protect life. And when you study the Shorter Catechism and look at all that it says, what is the, tenth, or the Sixth Commandment and what does it forbid and so on and so on, all the different questions, you can see how our, our Westminster divines expounded uh, the, the, the commandments so powerfully and so succinctly. And it is designed to protect life, our own life and the life of others. And that's what the law of the land should be doing. Now here we have the... Uh, the teaching of our Secretary of State that the power given to him by Westminster 
to commission abortion services fully in this country is for the health and the well-being of women. The children are not even mentioned in his statement. Everything you say is focused on the selfish society in which we live. That's what drives opposition to God, selfishness. And so, this is what's going on as a very up-to-date example. Here it is in our own province. Who ever would have thought 10 years ago, 20 years ago at the most, that such a thing would happen, that there would be the legislation of the murder of the unborn, and yet it's there, it's in place. And this is the kind of thing that is very relevant to this little parable, because what you have there is an unjust law. It is an unrighteous law. You see, it's passed by the parliament, and this man, Heaton Harris, has been given this so-called authority to do this and, and uh, implement the, de- the, the commissioning of the abortion services, and he thinks that he is protected by man's law. And little does he realize what he is doing in his blindness, that he's lifting his hand against Almighty God, that he's imbued by the spirit of Antichrist, changing laws and times in order to satisfy selfish women who in the first instance can't behave themselves and get pregnant and then don't want the child or the children. And they cry for their rights, but never mention the little ones in the womb. And they're slaughtered, torn to pieces, cast away like rubbish. My friend, it's unnatural, it's unjust. It's the day in which we live. That's what I mean. I know they're always having the slaughter of the innocents, but now it's being legislated. And if you don't agree with this, and this becomes more and more apparent, if you don't agree with this, then you are going to be counted as being unlawful. Law has been turned in its head. Evil is called good, and good is called evil. This is the day in which we find ourselves. This is the kind of thing that you see coming out of this parable. And so, in this situation where they're unjust... uh, powers and, and they're bringing about unjust laws and so on, uh, and it results in the persecution of God's people, and so it does, and so it will more and more. In that situation, believers are to look to the Lord for their vindication. Now, that vindication will not come fully and completely until Jesus Christ returns. But in the meantime, we need to pray that God might overrule. So, persistence in prayer is the thrust, as I said earlier. And when believers are dealt with unjustly and feeling this, they cry to the Lord for justice to be done. And they may do so with the expectancy that the Lord will vindicate them. That is the nature of God. He is just. And he will see to it that justice is done. Now, he could intervene and he could turn this on its head. And that we need to pray for and lay hold upon God for that.
He alone is able to deal with the injustice that is done to his people. We see the woman here going to this judge, and, and while there's a lot of uh, mystery in a sense, he's an unjust judge, and he has no compassion, he's no feeling for that woman or her cause. She's just a nuisance to him. And all of that, that detail is also there. Yet the principle that comes out is, the point that comes out is, eventually he answered her and he gave her justice. And that's what we need to latch on to. Because it goes on to say in verse 7, And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cried day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? The Lord is able to turn things around. And as I said, much of that vindication will not happen until the Savior comes again in all His glory. Look with me uh, on into verse number 8. He says, I tell you that He will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall He find faith on the earth? That's a searching question. Mr. Wagner and I were discussing it when he was here a few weeks ago. And what does that question mean? When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? And I gave him my thought. And here's my thought on that. Such will be the pressure on the saints of God toward the end that they will almost have given up all hope of deliverance. It can't mean that when the Lord comes back, will the gospel have been destroyed? It doesn't mean that, because the gospel will continue and be preached. But such will be the pressure on the saints that they'll be at the point when they're looking for the Lord to come and vindicate them, that they'll be at the point where it almost seems it's not going to come. I feel that's in keeping with the whole parable. And so, there's the argument. We have a just cause. We're to come and plead with God about it, who does vindicate, who does avenge, who does deal with the adversary. We have an advocate. It's the second thing, quickly, I just want to mention two other points. There is the argument. That was the main content of what I wanted to say tonight. But then there is the advocate. Notice what the Lord says. Shall not God avenge His own elect, which cry day and night, unto him. And the word unto means to or towards. And the sense is of prayer being directed toward the Lord. And the thought therefore comes out channeled through a mediator. In other words, that's how we always pray. We channel our prayers toward God, but we don't do so without a mediator. And therefore, there's an advocate at least implied in this language. And thank God, all the other Scripture, the rest of Scripture backs that up. We have an advocate with God who does take our cries, our prayers, and He carries them toward God. And, and that is actually true. Turn quickly to Revelation 8. Revelation chapter 8, a very relevant uh, reference here. Revelation 8, verse number 3. And it says, Another angel came and stood at the altar, and I believe that other angel is Christ. But anyhow, this other angel is a priest. That's really what you need to see here. Revelation 8, verse 3. He comes, he stands at the altar, he's a golden censer. There is given unto him much incense. He's acting as a priest. 
This is Christ undoubtedly. There was given on him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which is before the throne. And the whole sense says of, of prayer being offered up. And there's incense, that means there's something that gives the prayer merit and value. And that's the incense of the value of our Savior's person and our Savior's death and all His merit. It gives value to our prayers. And that incense is offered with the prayers of the saints. Then verse 4, And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. So it gets right through to the throne of God. What we're seeing in the parable Prayer unto God, carried up to God by Christ the high priest through the merit and value of the atonement. But look at verse 5. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And what you find is, as a result of the prayers of the saints been heard in heaven, immediately there follow from this the seven trumpets of, of wrath. The, 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 that's what it's all about, the trumpets of wrath, and they sound one after the other, and judgment begins to fall upon this world, upon men. And so what we're finding is, as the saints pray, God hears, and judgment is administered and is poured out upon the ungodly. We haven't time to look any farther at that, but thank God we not only have an argument that we have a just cause and the Lord will hear that, but we have an advocate, Christ, who carries our prayers to the throne. And then, of course, there is the access because here, verse 7, verse 8, and Luke 18, they do tell us about crying to the Lord uh, we see the widow woman crying to the Lord and pleading with that, or crying to the judge, and the Lord takes that and He talks about His people, verse 7, crying day and night unto Him. There's access to God, and it's free and open. It's always there, always available to us. It's constant. It says day and night. It says there, read it again, verse 7, Shall not God avenge His own elect, his own elect which cry day and night unto Him? Oh, my dear friend, wonderful words, because God has an elect people always on this earth and somewhere in this world, whether during the day or during the night, depending on our time zones, the Lord's people are crying. When you're sleeping, others are praying and crying to heaven. And when they're sleeping, you are praying. And so, there is not only a free open access here, there's a constant access to God, and there is a pouring out of souls of the hearts of God's people before the throne of heavenly grace. And you got the unison there, the elect of God which cry unto Him day and night. Let me tell you something. When adversity comes, it, it unites God's people. It brings them together. And they speak with one voice, and they cry with one voice to the throne of God above. Let me ask you a question. When you pray at home in your, in your private time, do you ever ask the Lord to bless all His people across the earth? And you know how we can do that, or why we can do that? Because Paul says to Timothy, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And we should do that. 
We don't know very many, do we? We only know a few, a handful of, of, of other Christians, comparably speaking. But there are multitudes of Christians across the face of the earth. They're the Lord's flock. They're called that. They're Christ's church. They're referred to as Christians, believers, the children of God, all the different terms that are used. But they're one collective body. And we can simply get on our knees and say, Lord, bless your people this day across the nations of this earth. Be with them, protect them, be near to them, bless them. We should pray like that. We sound rather general, but we only can be general in that context. Yes, we can pick out this one and that one that we know from our own congregation, trials, difficulties, we know their names, we know their circumstances to some degree or other, and we don't know anything at all about people, the Lord's people out there, but the Lord knows. He knows their names. He knows all their needs. He knows who's going through the fire. He knows who is being persecuted openly and blatantly, and we are to remember those in bonds as being in bonds with them, the bonds of grace with them, and pray for them, because this parable is always true. There's always a people unjustly dealt with and treated shamefully by the ungodly. But thank God we have access to the throne. We have an advocate above, and we can come and pour out our souls. And may the Lord help us tonight and bless us as we meet before Him and we wait at His feet. Let's just have a word of prayer before Mr. Stewart will give some announcements. Father, bless us now. As Thy Word has been viewed and we have thought about it tonight, we pray that Thou wilt write it on our hearts and bless it to us. And, O oh God, be, be pleased to use it tonight to help us to pray and come and touch our souls. Uh, lift us up toward heaven itself as we wait at thy feet. Remember thy persecuted church. Remember the unjust who uh, afflict the saints of God in so, ver so many various ways. And Lord, come to the defense of your children and remember them this night. Be with us now, we pray, for Christ's sake and for Christ's glory. Amen.